1: I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias is vacationing on Martha's Vineyard, where a venal mare has just given the go-ahead for tourists to return to the beach after a couple of mysterious tourist-devouring accidents that we probably don't need to give any more thought. Eh, it'll be fine. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week we're living every week like it's Shark Week, or at least we're living this week and next week like like they're both Shark Week. Yeah, you get get the idea. We're talking about sharks, is what I'm saying. Keith, you've got a couple whiskeys in you. It's been a grim, quiet night here in the studio. Do you maybe have an Oscar-worthy monologue for us about what's up with our current pairing?
3: We was coming back from dinner and heading to the Navy Pier IMAX theater in Chicago. We just got our popcorn. We took our seats. Three hundred critics and special guests went into that screening and none of us came out until the movie was over. The movie took two hours to play, but you didn't see that CGI shark until at least an hour in. It was a megalodon. The Meg, they called it. Prehistoric thing. Two million years old. 25 meters long if it was an inch. You know how that you can tell when you're watching the movie? The exposition? The damned exposition. Go into a shark movie looking to see someone eaten by a shark and felt like we didn't get it for a week. "'Just a bunch of Jason Statham taking his shirt off and growling at people. "'That Statham, he's got lifeless eyes. "'Movie hero tough guy eyes. "'Hardly even looks a living until he goes to punch a megalodon in the face. "'Well, we formed ourselves into podcasting groups to talk about it. "'You know, just bunching up together to compare this new shark movie, The Meg, "'to the mother of all, Steven Spielberg's Jaws.' Never been frightened of comparing two movies before now, but I think we may run aground once we start talking about how much one of these movies runs shallow and one runs deep. Anyway, we're delivering this podcast.
1: Hmm. Well, you lost the Oscar to Jack Nicholson, but I really think you got robbed on this one, Keith. (laughs) So this week, we're inspired by the latest killer shark movie, John Turtletaub's The Meg, and we're going to be looking back on the shark movie that kicked off the idea of the summer blockbuster, made Steven Spielberg a household name, proved it was possible to make a film better than the book that inspired it, and set the stage for generations of horror movies that tease at the monster without showing it until the end. Oh, yeah. And on next week's podcast, we'll talk about The Meg, too. (laughs) Please stay with us.
0: True that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about ten feet from the beach. Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish, but I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out of the water now? This shark will swallow you whole.
1: You're going to need a bigger boat. Spielberg's 1975 masterpiece, Jaws, is a pretty non-standard creature feature. In the broadest conceptions, it follows the model of the monster films that came before it. There's a great beast, it's picking off innocent humans one by one, it's escalating its attacks, and some brave heroes have to hunt it down before it does any more harm. But the movie lacks a lot of the themes that defined the genre during the 40s and 50s particularly, about the hubris of scientists and the terrors that they're unlocking every day. It replaces those with thoughts about masculinity and power, about greed and short-sightedness, and about capitalism. That makes it a lot more ambitious than most killer animal movies. In fact, Jaws is largely defined by Spielberg's ambition, which had its downsides, including a 55-day shoot that ran more than 100 days' overtime. But the upsides led it to become such a historically important film, such a watershed in American filmmaking, that virtually every moment of its conception, planning, shooting, editing, and release has been exhaustively documented. That's why we know so precisely that it's one of those strange alchemy movies, the kind of film that seems perfect and planned in every regard, but that it was actually a series of extremely fortunate accidents, last-minute retoolings, necessary compromises that worked beautifully, and guesswork that paid off. As written and planned as a straight-action adaptation of Peter Benchley's novel about a killer shark, Jaws was almost an extremely different movie. Now, it's just possible that we would still consider this movie a classic if it starred Spielberg's original pick, John Voight, as a much grittier version of Hooper, and if Lee Marvin had accepted when he was offered the role of Quint, and if Charlton Heston's bid for the starring role as police chief Martin Brody had gone through. Now, that would have been a very different cast, and given how much the script was retooled around Richard Dreyfuss's persona as Hooper in particular, it would have been a very different story as well. But even assuming that casting had worked out, it's still doubtful that we would revere Jaws in the same way if it had been shot with Benchley's reportedly blunt and simple original script, instead of Spielberg bringing in playwright Howard Sackler and comedy writer Carl Gottlieb for significant reworking, then letting his cast revise the material to their own standards during shooting. By all reports, Benchley's version of Robert Shaw's memorable speech about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis was a brief thing, less than a minute long. The rewrite was then ten full pages. Shaw ended up revising it to a much shorter version, which we actually see in the movie. So there's a lot of range for how different that scene could have played. It's also unlikely that it would feel the same way about it if Spielberg had caved to studio advice and pressure and shot the C sequences on a controlled soundstage in a water tank. Instead, he chose to make this the first major motion picture shot out on the open ocean, which gave him endless technical difficulties and time and cost overruns, but resulted in a believable and often naturalistic movie. Above all, if the several mechanical sharks designed for the film had worked perfectly, Spielberg himself says Jaws would be a much more conventional creature feature, what he calls a Japanese Saturday matinee horror flick, instead of a Hitchcockian stalker thriller. Instead, he was forced to work around how rarely there were available and functioning, and he built an entire story about a monster that mostly couldn't be seen until just before it struck. In the process, he redefined the language of American monster movies. Looking at Jaws today, it's particularly hard to imagine what we would have ended up with if any of these variations had been allowed to affect the final feature. The movie feels so deliberate and thought through as if every line and moment has significance. And studying it in exhaustive detail doesn't dissipate that feeling of weight. It comes from the lofty inspirations like Melville's Moby Dick and Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, which both have obsessives battling implacable nature in life-or-death situations at sea. It comes from the richness of the character building, particularly the distinctions in class, background, education, and maritime competence between the three men at the story's core. And it comes from the message about American capitalism that's underlined when the giant shark first mauls a skinny dipper off Amity Island and the fearful mare refuses to shut down the beaches or go after the shark out of fear of harm to the tourist trade. The idea of an unseen mysterious monster is still part of the standard language of monster movies today, but so is the idea of the unbeliever who values profit over people's lives and who gets in the hero's way to defend his ability to make a buck. We see echoes of that archetype in serious movies like Alien and ridiculous ones like Joe Dante's Piranha. It's a mainstay of the Jurassic Park films, and it turns up one more time in the Meg, the 2018 giant shark movie we'll be talking about next week in relationship to Jaws. Obviously, Jaws also inspired a long run of sequels that never recaptured the magic of the first, in part because they were never as interested in innovation or grand themes or iconic figures. They were largely interested in the big toothy fish-eating teenagers. What's thrilling to imagine, though, and more horrifying than even that doll-eyed giant shark, is that without Spielberg's hubris, inexperience, determination, vision, and a whole lot of good fortune, Jaws might have been one of those movies, just another monster-heavy creature feature, good for a half-aware watch on a Sunday afternoon.
0: Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was... Shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces.
1: (laughs) So guys, obviously, a lot of what I was just talking about was um, about accidents during filmmaking or a kind of useful happenstance, uh, improvisation among the actors, just like a lot of other things that just kind of fell together well. But I don't want to undersell the importance of what Spielberg himself brought to Jaws. What what do you see as like his biggest contribution to the film, like kind of his directorial stamp here?
3: Well, it's it's tough because it's you know so early in his career that you're seeing these things for the first time, and and he's trying some things out. But I think if Scott were here, (laughs) I'm going to fill in for Scott, and he would immediately cite the scene where they kind of lay out the discussion as they're moving on the ferry from one from on the island off mm-hmm. and the camera stays planted but the boat moves and you get all this sort of interesting production value um to quote super eight because uh everything's moving behind them and like what could just be just laying it out i it's beautifully acted i mean everyone's everyone's great in the moment but you know, you also get sort of a sense of geography of the space of moving from the isolation of the island back to the mainland, and 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 uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you know making every moment count is probably the overarching signature. I would, if that's the right way to put that, uh, that I would I would uh, I would say about this film.
1: I mean, just to clarify, that's a big exposition scene where they're just kind of laying out a lot of the the yes. situation on the island.
3: Yeah, but but does it, does it feel like a big exposition scene? No,
1: I just think that's an important point to make in terms of like the content of the scene as well yeah. as the the kind of the visuals of it.
2: For me and this is sort of related it's just how much of an impact Amity makes the the town of Amity and the the people of it like rewatching this movie this time I I'm always surprised when I rewatch this movie, which I've seen probably four or five times at this point, how much of it takes place on the Orca because in my mind that's the last twenty minutes of the movie when it actually is more like the last fifty minutes to an hour of the movie you know um but for for me anyway, just the the build up in Amity of the realization of this threat and everything that goes into trying to mitigate the threat and being forced to address it. Like the way it's drawn, both the main characters and all the minor characters, the way the filmmaking kind of, like we said, sort of helps the exposition along. It's just all so well done. And it just, it always, it's the first thing I always think of when I think of Jaws is Amity and all those scenes on the beach more so. Than the the biggest part of the movie, arguably, which is them on the orca.
3: I mean, it's, I think this is almost a you know perfect movie in most yeah. ways, and I, and I love the ending of it. But I think the best scene in the movie is that first shark attack on the beach. Mm-hmm. The mounting tension and and the way. Brody's watching the, the scene, and he keeps getting interrupted. There's a guy coming over, like with some name request or whatever. And he's trying to look around him, and uh, the way it cuts on people passing by, and you get closer and closer uh, until finally you get that sort of that vertigo zoom in push out effect when when the truck actually attacks. And then and then the music comes in, and you realize you just it's just been ambient noise the entire time. It's it's amazing piece of filmmaking, and and you know high point in the movie for me
2: yeah for me it's the i guess the next beach attack scene the, that takes place on the Fourth of July with the the finn prank right, that, that yeah. leads into the the pond attack i guess and what i 'm always struck by in that scene is and i'm i'm pretty sure this was innovative at the time is the way that the camera is in the water right at the water level mm-hmm. and you 're in the water with those swimmers. When someone yells shark and everyone starts paddling out of the water, like they're paddling toward you, they're around you. It's like there's water splashing the camera. It's this, you're in the midst of that chaos. And it's just so effective at translating that panic through just through sound and image. And then the way the scene progresses with the relief and then the another call of shark and Brody doesn't believe it at first. And then the theme starts to creep up. The jaw seems starts to creep up, creep up as he as he realizes like oh oh and you know and then everyone runs there and it's just it, there's such a great build to that scene and such great tension and release throughout it. It's just I love that Fourth of July attack.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I, I think there's a lot of contenders for best scene in the movie, but my favorite shot of the movie is that that long tracking shot where he kind of wearily starts trudging towards the the little inlet thing and then just bit by bit. Well, his wife says, Your, our, our son's there, yeah. and that perks him up a little, and then he starts thinking about it, and then he starts moving faster and faster. And for me, like one of the, the things about that is just it just speaks to to Spielberg's talent at build. So mm-hmm. much of this movie is about build and release, build and release, and slowly escalating tension. And, I mean, we talk about him not having a ton of projects under his belt at this point, but he did have Duel, which is mm-hmm. – kinda feels like a dry run for Jaws in a lot of ways. It's it's got like a lot less moving parts and obviously big names and special effects but it does have that sense of a long slow escalating chase and here it's just there's so much it's so important I think that he wanted this movie to be funny as well as terrifying Mm. like it's been a long time since I've read the book but I remember it as pretty dry and humorless and it was so important to Spielberg that there be laugh moments that there be you know release and relief moments and just the whole film I think would not work so well as like a long Escalation of tension if there wasn't so much release in it at so many different points.
3: But yeah, and that's he kept going with that. Obviously, that's something that that stayed with him, and you know, in, in you know, so many of his films. I mean, you know, you think of, when you think of like Raiders, you think of the funny moments, as long alongside everything else. I mean, the one of the best gags is a gag. I mean, the, the shooting the guy with the sword scene.
1: Yeah, which reportedly was an ad lib on the day, mm-hmm. and I, like the the degree to which Spielberg has kind of trusted in his actors. To to ad lib and to rewrite dialogue and to put things in their own words is not something that I think he's necessarily well known for. But it's I mean it's definitely paid dividends in his films. And here apparently was a a pretty important part of the story um, was going through draft after draft, including drafts that where the actors were just given the scripts on the day. Here's what we came up with. Do with it. Figure out what you would do with it. How your character would do this.
2: That humor instinct is also arguably what got Dreyfus to come on for the film I was listening to an interview with Carl Gottlieb talking about uh, I guess Dreyfus had read the script and he was like kind of at a point in his career where he just like didn't think it was right for him he said like this is a movie I would like to watch but not like to be in and Gottlieb and Spielberg like went to visit him at his hotel room to like kind of talk about it and i guess dreyfus like did the styrofoam cup crush thing (laughs) and gottlieb says i don't remember if he said it to spielberg or vice versa but uh, they said to each other like like a moment like that we should have a moment like that in the film and that's the kind of stuff we're going to give you and like so they kind of won dreyfus over by saying like we're going to give these character moments you know in the film
1: yeah i've also read that uh dreyfus didn't want to do the film and then he, like, he saw the first draft of uh, the Apprenticeship of Dudley Kravitz, which he was in, mm-hmm. and was afraid it was going to tank his career. Yep. So he wanted to jump into something else right away uh, to make sure he got another movie. And then that film did apparently incredibly well. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there are just the, the deeper you dig into this film, the more of those, like, weird little coincidences and confluences you come up with. Among other things, I think just this film would have such a different feel if it was shot in a tank and Mm -hmm. uh, on a a stage set. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he threw himself into this whole idea of we've got to shoot at sea, I mean, like, that in and of itself, I think, is just a Spielbergian thing, is, like, having that ambition and that vision to say we need to do it this way that nobody's ever done it before. Like... (laughs) Fortune favors the bold 20 something that thinks he knows better than anybody that's ever come before him but it's still a pretty ambitious uh, uh, attempt. It's
3: funny too because because now he's known for bringing stuff in under budget and, and ahead of schedule. <laughs> so whatever, you know, whatever you had to get out of the system with this one, I guess he did. But I guess you also kind of, you you write your own way after after you make a film like Jaws.
1: Yeah, I didn't talk too much in the intro about the degree to which this movie redefined how movies are released. I mean, it kicked off the whole idea of the summer blockbuster, you know, the big budget popcorn film um, that's released wide. I, I think of all the things I found out like researching for this film the idea that a wide release was a really rare thing back then. Almost kind of a badge of shame. And it yeah. was like, let's
3: just get this out quickly and get it over with.
1: And just let's get it out before there's any word of mouth about this stinker. Cause it's only going to be in theaters a week. Mm-hmm. And like, in this case, the theater believed in it and backed it and wanted it wide because they thought it was going to be huge, but it was really working. Like, I mean, it's like a film today deciding that. uh the best release strategy is going to be like dribbling it out into, into theaters like over the course of months, which we've seen small indies do specifically to build word of mouth. But again, it's kind of contrainstinctual.
3: I'm not sure that we're necessarily the better for this change to the model. I think we're kind of seeing it in its end stages now. Well, I don't know if end stages, but its final form, at least, where, where it's, everything's about the first weekend. I mean, everything's the first weekend for almost any movie, even stuff that platforms, you know, you extrapolate how it's going to do from that first week, and, and its fate is kind of sealed. But, you know, here we are. You know, As, as blockbusters go, you can't really ask for a better model than, than Jaws, but uh, I do sometimes would that this had not been the former release that kind of just swallowed the rest of Hollywood. Like some kind of, I don't know,
1: well, octopus yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I mean it's interesting that uh like between Spielberg and Lucas so much of how cinema worked was how American cinema worked was uh, redefined on a fundamental business level and the two of them got together a few years ago and said, you know, the the blockbuster tent pole model is killing the industry and everything is going to everything is terrible, nothing is okay. It's all going to fall apart from here. <laughs> Sorry guys. So okay. Scott isn't here, uh, which is tragic because this is one of his favorite films, but it's also kind of fun because we can talk about extratextuals without actually having his brain explode.
2: Mm-hmm. Like given all of the behind the scenes stories that have become so like popularized and put out there in the culture,
1: is there anything that stands out for you?
2: In that same interview with Gottlieb, he mentioned that they were uh, lucky enough, <laughs> his words, uh, that there was a shark attack in San Diego the the week of Jaws' release. <laughs> so uh sort of tapping into a a zeitgeist there but um i mean i do think that's sort of interesting in terms of how this film codified the shark movie you know what we think of as a shark movie and that people who were experiencing it for the first time in 1975 were experiencing it in a context where that was a big news story you know and obviously shark attacks are a a story that we hear about again and again, but that it was so close to the release of Jaws. Like if it happened today, we'd we'd make jokes about if it's viral marketing, you know. But then we're so I, jaded. I know, <laughs> I know. I did a cursory Google to see if I could find evidence of this and couldn't. So I don't know. Maybe Gottlieb made it up, you know, or like convinced himself it happened over time. But if we're talking about the myth of Jaws, it would certainly be appropriate.
3: I mean, I was two when this movie came out. But even like when I became aware of sort of like what was going on in the culture? I mean, Jaws was still kind of everywhere, even even a couple of years later. I mean, Tasha, you're you're about my age. You kind of remember this stuff too. It's just like toys and merchandise and. books. Oh yeah, and,
1: and the the little snappy game where it's just like the head of a shark with its mouth yes, cropped. Open. I had that. <laughs> they, <laughs> I never had it, but I coveted it, it deeply.
3: It's actually still a current toy. They're just taking the Jaws branding yeah. off of it. But you know, beyond like sort of that wide release, just sort of this. You know, before this we had the Exorcist and to a lesser extent Planet of the Apes, but just sort of these, you know, huge phenomena of movies that, that kind of came to dominate the pop culture conversation. And this is kind of the beginning of that and in, 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 in on this scale anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. For me, the the one of the extra textual things that just <laughs> Completely blows my mind. Scott style is the the whole thing around Hooper. Hooper in the shark cage. In the in the novel, the shark gets into the shark cage and kills Hooper, and and he dies. And they planned on that being like the part of the plot of the movie. But then they had a diving team shooting B roll of sharks, and they had a big great white like break into an empty shark cage and get stuck in it and thrash around. And they loved the footage of it so much. They what well, they were like. Well, we don't have Hooper escaping from the cage uh so that's not going to work out we obviously don't have this real shark eating him so what we see in the movie is like an actual shark that's stuck on a cage and fighting to get free and they just rewrote the movie around that scene mm. like the hooper lives in the movie because they have that footage <laughs> and it was just so good that spielberg needed to keep it
3: and what Point did they drop Hooper and Brody's wife having an affair? Because I know that's mm. a big part of the book.
1: Yeah, I think really early on. That's uh, a smart
3: choice. I mean, that's oh, just yeah. I mean for lots of reasons. There's just too much going on when you have that.
2: Is, is there also like a mafia subplot or I something? I so. I've, I've never read it. <laughs> oh, it's been
1: such a long time. Mostly, what I remember about it was just finding it uh, like a really blunt book, like Lee Child's level machine gun prose. Uh, only action matters. Description doesn't matter. And that's just – it's such a strange thing after watching this movie over and over when the environment is so important to the story. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that's really important to the story are these characters. Uh, I mean this this movie is so much about the characters in a way that other shark movies, other monster movies aren't. I mean is that is that what stands out for you about what makes this film great, the fact that it's so – People focused, or is it something else primarily?
3: Oh yeah, I don't think it would work nearly as well without the the investment it puts in those characters and those performances. They're all three such different types of of men too, as well. And I think drivers casting is so perfect mm-hmm. too. Like from that first scene where he's standing next to to the much taller, yeah, Amity resident. Oh, like, I love that. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> just
2: and, just just like his. Oh well, kind of reaction of that guy, kind of trying to flex on him a little bit. And He's just like, all right, yeah, <laughs>
3: you know? yeah, such yeah. a
2: perfect encapsulation of the form of masculinity he is bringing to the table, I guess.
3: Right, but he's never he's never mocked for it either. No. Like he's just it's a different way of being uh, a guy. I mean, he's got his own kind of style of confidence to it. It's just so, but he's the while well, still being the exact opposite of Robert Shaw's no.
1: character. <laughs> yeah, when we did this as a movie of the week back in the dissolve pouring out a little 40 (laughs) for the dissolve uh we talked a bunch about the the masculinity aspect of jaws and in particular i for me gosh one of the things that just kind of to get ahead of myself bores me to tears about the meg is that jason statham's character embodies a particular kind of masculinity that i've it's one note and i've seen it a million times in film here you've got several different models you know you've got the a kind of tough, solitary lone wolf guy who's incredibly competent in his area and very domineering. You've got the very smart guy who's an expert in a wide variety of things and is knowledgeable and capable of using it. And you've got the kind of charismatic guy who's a vital part of his community. Um, and all of them are different forms of masculinity. A lot of what's interesting in the film is how they work together in isolation once those three dudes are alone. But it's also just the film takes time to establish what's important about each of them.
2: Yeah. And I I, I mean, I feel a little bad because I started out talking of like characterizing the stuff on the orca as like secondary (laughs) to this movie. And like, it's it's absolutely not. Like, I, I agree that this is pretty much a perfect movie. And those, that portion of the movie is very important. And it is very important because of the interactions between those three guys and, and I guess the moments leading up to when they leave on the Orca, but just so much character work comes out in their interactions and so much backstory. And, and, you know, we're probably, we're going to talk about exposition uh, I'm sure when we get to the second part of of this episode, but just in terms of delivering exposition about these characters and why they are different and why this combination of them works well, like it's just so elegantly done in the conversations among the three of them.
1: What about the shark? I mean, we know it's a big plastic shark. In the end, it jumps up on a on onto the ship, and it's just so obviously a big plastic shark. Is yeah,
3: so it though? I, I don't know. I I find it really scary.
1: Actually, well, that, that was the question: was is it scary?
3: Yeah, it doesn't look plasticky to me either. It feels like they they use it that effect sparingly, but when they do, it works. Maybe I'm just easily convinced, mm-hmm. but but I I don't know. I, I find that stuff really effective.
2: Yeah. Um. I. I. Don't necessarily find the the one shot, which I know, Tasha, you are also not a fan of, of bruce breaching the, the the orca like coming up out of the water i think that is like the one moment in the film where the illusion kind of breaks but there are other moments where we do see the mechanical shark and it does work i'm thinking of again going back to that uh the fourth of july attack and in the pond and the the man in the boat and there's a a shot of the shark under the water you know and it's gaping maw and it's sort of like distorted by the water and In terms of using the monster that you can't show very much of effectively, like that is sort of the quintessential shot for me in in Jaws. And then followed by the the plume of red water, which is kind of the signature effect here in terms of showing what the shark can do.
1: I've read that Spielberg told all of his designers like no red in people's clothing, in the bathing suits, you know, in the toys that they have on the beach, in the sets, in the buildings. Mm-hmm. Like, just leave red yeah. for these plumes. That's the only place we're going to see it, which think, is not something I ever noticed. But yeah. wow,
3: I think one discussed aspect of this film is it makes daytime scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's definitely nighttime elements to it for sure. I mean, starting with that opening opening attack, but. It just makes it this really normal scene of, of of people frolicking on the beach and and to feel like an unsafe place and and you know and part is the brightness of the blood and this is actually looks so much more like blood than most seventies movie mm-hmm. blood does I mean it's it's really kind of clinical looking in in a, in a way that makes it really uh, effective.
1: There's also just like the disappearance of the dog and then the shark attack. Pippet. <laughs> Pippet. 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 We'll get back to Pippet. <laughs> the disappearance of the dog and uh the attack on the boy, I think both have a kind of extra dread because they happen with so many people around. There is a terror to swimming alone at night and uh being attacked and nobody even knowing for a while. But I mean this thing just comes and eats a kid in the middle of a huge crowd. And I think there's not only a sense for everybody of that could have been me, there's a sense of you know, we're herd animals. We have a herd instinct. You know, it's okay to park on this street that says no parking because a whole bunch of other people have parked there. They're not going to tow us all. That shark's not going to come into this crowd of people and eat us all. And then the, the the one antelope gets picked off and all the other antelope are like, oh, holy crap, we got to run.
3: What this shark presupposes is maybe it will. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That said, I do want to highlight the effectiveness of another nighttime scene, other than the opening one, which is the discovery of Ben Gardner's boat. Because wow, like that—that—that that, that is a jump scare that you—you you always know it's coming. I—I I don't know about you guys, but it always mm-hmm. it always hits me. I want to bring it up, like as a way to discuss Verna Fields and the editing, because I think like the editing is such a huge part of why this movie feels so mean and so propulsive, and that jump scare is just like i think a beautiful little moment of editing and that like the lighting in that scene with the the spot and then the under boat lights and then uh and the fog but then like as we kind of get closer to the boat you get these little images like you get a brief glimpse of the bite out of the side of the boat that, that they can't see and then uh, we get hooper going into the water and then and then he finds the tooth and then we see the hole in the boat and he's kind of like looking at the tooth and it just holds for a minute and you know something's about to happen <laughs> but it holds just long enough that when it happens, it scares the out of you. And it's a straight-up horror movie scene. Like, a lot of this movie is not necessarily what you think of as traditional horror, but just the beats of that scene, the filmmaking of it, the staging of it, it's like pure horror filmmaking to me
1: so I have two things to say about that mm-hmm. shot one is that uh, our friend Noel Murray was the one that that tipped me off in a piece of writing years and years ago that whenever you're in a horror movie and there's open space mm-hmm. to the side something's gonna fill that space and him him writing about that like really redefined how I watch horror movies and I I find jump scares worse now because you like, you know, something's coming, but now I know where it's going to (laughs) come. I have a sense for how bad it's going to be. And that, that doesn't defang it at all. But the other thing is when you were reading up on this, did you, did you come across the information about that scene? No. So it wasn't part of the initial shoot Spielberg. Like they were apparently in the process of cutting it. And Spielberg describes himself as getting hungry for one more scare. So he went back to the studio and was like, mm. I, like, I want to shoot this underwater scene with this gory corpse that'll make everybody jump out of their seats. And the <laughs> Universal was like, no, you were more than 100, 100 days of over budget, no more than $9 million over budget on a $4 million film. No. So he shot it himself, like in a pool with his own money oh, <laughs> to wow. get that shot.
2: Well, it worked. Yeah, worth it. Even, uh, definitely even, worth it. You even, even, probably got that money back.
1: Uh, I, I, would, I would hope so.
2: You, you know it's effective because like when you take a good look at that head, it's not a really good effect head at all. Oh, like, the, no. like the the neck is a little too long and you can like see the stick that's poking out the other side <laughs> of it, you know?
1: I mean, it looks very, it doesn't look like a human corpse particularly. It looks very inhuman, but it's also sort of convincing as a, a body that's been in the mm-hmm. water for a while and has been waterlogged. Again, the distortive effect of water does a lot with the effects here. And general. also, you know, the distorting effects of terror. Yes. Sheer pants wedding terror.
3: <laughs> and also having recently watched Jaws Revenge for a piece, all the effects look so much better.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. So why don't we talk a little bit about the sequels? I sure. mean, they kept pumping out Jaws's and imitators. You did a, a whole piece for The Dissolve about Great White, was it called?
3: It has a lot of different names. It's, I think it's also known, as, maybe best known as The Last Shark, but it was sort of Italian Jaws ripoff. And if you if you watch it, Vic Morrow is, 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 is a very good actor, but he's basically just doing a Robert Shaw rip off performance i mean it's unsavory almost how much he's he's ripping off robert shaw uh but it was deemed Two so much like Jaws that had to be pulled from theaters by court order in America. <laughs> I mean, it's now on Amazon Prime, so you can check it out. But uh, but yes, there were there were many ripoffs and 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 but I mean to, just to show how hard it is to do it well. Wow, I mean you can just go look at the sequels. Jaws Two is the best of the sequels, and it has a shark attacking a helicopter, which doesn't make <laughs> any sense. And um, Jaws Three is set in a water park, like a, a Sea World type uh, water park, which I haven't, I haven't seen that one in years. But Jaws: The Revenge is a famously terrible movie, which uh, hinges on the premise that the sharks are now seeking revenge on the Brody family (laughs) for the things they've done to sharks over the years.
2: To shark kind.
3: To shark kind,
2: yes. (laughs) I mean...
3: Don't try to make sense of it, Tasha. Just just, don't. No, just don't.
2: Don't do it. Is it Chinatown? Because I just don't...
1: (laughs) I guess I just don't understand. Oh, and again, this is something we'll get into with The Meg, because I, I do feel like The Meg at least tries to go back to the Jaws well in terms of having themes and, and characters and a story. It just it seems like I, I guess I know it's hard to, to believe this, but it seems like the sequels learned the wrong lessons or mm-hmm. learned the, the dumb lessons or learned the easy lessons. I just don't know how hard it is to understand that, you know, you meld a scary horror story with a good people story. As opposed to melding a fish with a bunch of crap you don't care about.
3: Yeah, but how do you do that twice? I mean, I, I don't. I don't really. I mean, it's the problem with all sequels, I guess. And but I mean, I, I think that's another sort of the bad part of the Jaws legacy is this idea that anything can have a sequel and you know just slap a two on it and and you know count the money and and you know I think that's it's also a testament to how rarely that works. I think I think you know Hollywood's gotten a lot better at, at you know having sequel ideas kind of baked in, into the original film. But, you know, not always to the benefit of the film themselves, but so many of the Jaws, the Jaws follow ups all just seem arbitrary.
1: It's like, let's just well, let's do it
3: again, you know, and it's just not always the best plan for to make a great movie.
1: Well, I mean, this movie, as we as I noted, has been analyzed and discussed and historically drawn out in oral history after oral history. Is there any aspect of this that has been you think has been under discussed that you want to bring to light or just a favorite thing to discuss that you want to talk about?
3: I don't know if it's been under-discussed, but how good is Murray Hamilton in this movie as the mayor? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's our second Murray Hamilton film after after The Graduate.
2: Yeah. Um, I also think this is our third Spielberg film we're discussing, thus making him the most discussed. Next Picture Close Show. Close Encounters for an we episode did, I wasn't there. We did Close Encounters. We did Ready Player One and this. Okay. It's
3: yeah. kind of hard not to talk about Spielberg. Yeah. yeah for sure. it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk
2: about Spielberg. <laughs> but Murray, Except, Murray Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. He's
3: so good as, as the mayor who, who just for 24 hours, that, that yeah. addition in that yeah. one scene, it's like, oh, you... You dumbass, okay. you know.
2: I like his suits.
3: Yes, his suits, suits are great. And and as I've joked on Twitter, and others have joked before, coming no doubt coming out the joke independently, is like one of the, one of the sure signs that democracy doesn't work. Is that he's the mayor in Jaws two. <laughs>
1: he's brought back for another round to take care of Amity Island. I uh, recently watched The Drowning Pool for the first time, and by recently I mean like two days ago. Um, one of the Harper films with uh, Paul Newman as a private eye and Murray Hamilton. <laughs> Murray Hamilton is the baddie in that, uh, basically, as a uh, a sleazy oil man who is ins- insanely rich and, you know, does whatever he needs to do to make more money. And mm. it it feels like a roll cut from a similar cloth just, like, pushed a little further. Uh, but he, just, he does sleaze so well. There's just something about the kind of lopsided grin that he puts on his face uh, that looks... Sheepish and placatory in Jaws and just looks, you know, full on uh, sociopathic in The Drowning Pool. It feels like he's a a man who has a decent range, but all within the medium of sleaze. So if if you've ever seen Murray Hamilton play like a nice guy or like a good dad, I'm I'm curious about those uh, those movies. I want to know about the killer
2: shark video game that's somehow on the beach.
1: <laughs> that was a real game. I, yeah? I, I,
3: yeah, I vaguely remember it from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I can tell you about it. I forget what it, what it's called, but um,
2: that cut just feels like such a quintessential Spielbergian mm-hmm. cut. You know, like opening a scene with the the shooting the the video game shark in the face, but. Uh, it's a uh,
1: ready player one prequel. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have anything to say beyond it other than like a video game
1: on the beach. Okay, why not? <laughs> well, it's probably I mean it's on the boardwalk. Yeah, you yeah. know, which is beach adjacent.
3: I remember mm-hmm. I used to go to a swimming pool that had video games and you would get a, an electric shock
1: playing
3: <laughs> coming with your wet feet and like perhaps the you know safety standards weren't as high as they ought to been.
2: <laughs> the real killer was the killer shark video game cabinet. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ow!
1: All right. Well, uh, with that, we 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 know that the urgency is upon us and that things are speeding up. So <laughs> we should perhaps transition into feedback, and we'll come back with uh, a lot more to say about Jaws and the Meg and why people are so into shark movies uh, that they keep bringing this this kind of like theme up over and over again, even though it so rarely uh, produces a good movie. We'll get into that in part two uh, when we. Discuss the connections between the Meg and Jaws, but for the moment we're going to do some feedback. Mm Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Here's one on our recent episodes pairing Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You with Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope. Genevieve, can you read this one for us? You can just use your
2: normal voice, not that weird overdub you've been doing lately. Oh, fine. Walking out of Sorry to Bother You, the scene in which Cassius was forced to rap was already my favorite scene of the movie for all the reasons you guys pointed out. But I liked it even more when my brother pointed out to me that it was really Lyft giving Cassius a test. Lyft doesn't partake in the rap with the crowd and instead watches Cash closely. It's directly after this scene that Lyft calls Cassius into his office to make him an offer. By making him rap, Lyft was seeing if Cash could get a group of people unlike him to rally behind him on something he knew nothing about, his rapping. If Cash could pull this off, then Lyft figured he could rally the equus sapiens to be on his side as well, even though he no longer associates with their struggles since becoming a power caller. This aspect of the screenplay went completely above my head, and I wonder what other clever details are hidden within the film. I really like that
1: observation. I mean, I, I think it's clear that he's, he's out of his element in that sequence, and he's willing to... Compromise some values that maybe he didn't even know he had until he's thinking about them afterwards. But he's he's a people pleaser. Like, he wants to be liked. He wants to be appreciated. And he wants to not be uncomfortable. And he's in such an uncomfortable position going into it. And I think that's something else that Lyft is kind of watching for is not just there, but kind of throughout the film. Like, everybody is watching for his ability to control a crowd, but also his ability to sell out and his willingness to sell out.
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a good point. And I think in second viewing of this film, which I'd love to do at some point would reveal more, more such, uh, intricacies.
1: Yeah. I want to watch it again myself in part, just to confirm certain things. I'm still stuck on the, uh, on being fairly convinced that there's a billboard, uh, about baby daddies that is later, uh, Vandalized into a different thing that is later being preserved as art in Lyft's house. And then it's just like a whole little silent visual thing about kind of the uh, appropriation and commodification of art, which is just entirely
2: in keeping with uh, how Boots Rally seems to see the world. Also, also in keeping with a screenplay that was worked on over years and years and years, like I feel like these sort of clever details, as Bennett says, are these, you know, little side narratives, you know, that, that you're talking about, not even narratives, background narratives that you're talking about, are maybe the kind of thing that evolves... It ideally evolves when you have years and years of tinkering with a script. You know, it's like the best case scenario for that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You end up with something that's very dense because you end up with a whole lot of ideas that you want to work in. Mm -hmm. We've also got a letter from Mac in Arlington, Virginia, which picks up on an observation we made on the first Mission Impossible movie in our dual Mission Impossible movie uh, podcast. This, on the other hand, extends it to the entire franchise. Keith, you want to read this?
3: Sure. Uh, Mac writes, You mentioned the overt references to Hitchcock present in the first film, the wrong man scenario, the set pieces, etc. So I thought I'd pile on with some ways the rest of the series dodges to or steals from the master's suspense. The connection to Mission Impossible 2 is possibly even more transparent than that of its predecessor. It's notorious, with masks, doves, and motorcycles. An American agent falls for a foreign woman with a checkered past that compels her to renew a romantic relationship with the villain. And in case that went over the heads of any classic movie fans, they even stage an identical information handoff at a horse track. Both films with the hero rescuing his poison love. I can't remember where I read it, but I swear I saw a quote from screenwriter Robert Town explaining that Fed up with having to wrap his story around preconceived set pieces, he just decided to use Notorious instead. All I can find now is a contradictory statement where he claims it's all a coincidence. Forget it, Bob. It's Mission Impossible time. (laughs) Mission Impossible 3 gets a little less explicit with J.J. Abrams combining his love of the mystery box with Hitchcock's notion of the MacGuffin. The rabbit's foot of MI3 takes quite literally Hitch's claim about the irrelevant nature of the central plot device. In my opinion, this is one of the missteps that makes the third film the weakest or at least dullest of the series. While it's true that it doesn't really matter what the MacGuffin is, I'm not sure we need Ethan Hunt actually expressing that at the end of the film. It may be incidental to the plot mechanics, but it should still matter to the characters. J.J., you incorrigible tease. If that last one was a bit of a stretch, the opera scene in Rogue Nation seems like a pretty obvious riff on the Royal Albert Hall climax of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Both versions, I guess. The silent action, the diegetic scoring, the crowd oblivious to the threat of political assassination, it's all there. That concludes my way too long treatise on inconsequential connections. I thought far too much about.
2: <laughs> well, I'm glad you're thinking about them. No, they're good oh, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I we'll think go. I think it's interesting because like we brought up Hitchcock in the context of Mission Possible One because De Palma is such a Hitchcock acolyte, you know. But I think what this letter suggests is that maybe all directors are to a certain <laughs> extent, because you know. Hitchcock made a lot of movies that influenced a lot of uh, future films.
1: Yeah, it's just, uh, to some degree, I feel like I'm almost happier not noticing some of these parallels when we're talking specifically about movies like Mission Impossible. I mean, when I'm looking at something like, I I don't know, uh, Wreck-It Ralph, and I'm seeing scenes inspired by specific movies it can feel like a uh, reference or homage but when you base an entire set piece i mean i i've seen enough baby carriages go slowly rattling down stairs during gunfights for an entire lifetime there are certain things that i just i don't need to see quoted again totally
3: rips off the untouchables
1: <laughs> you no <know>, right actually <laughs> <laughs> tap, 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 never right. needed to be done again um yeah it, it's mostly just a, a case of when you reference one thing it can feel like homage when you're devoting an entire movie franchise to like serially ripping off uh, hitchcock like at how many films does it come back around to homage again from ripoff at what point does it become a a theme in your movies that you're living up to as opposed to eh, we don't know what to do let's let's steal some hitch
3: so you heard it from tasha mission impossible movies are bad now and should not be watched <laughs>
1: That is exactly what I said. And everything that I said, can you go back and re-edit the previous Mission Impossible uh, episodes we recorded and just just record a loop of me saying Mission Impossible movies are bad. (laughs) Like anytime
2: I'm talking during those. Yeah, definitely. I'll go back and delete the ones that have already uploaded and and redo them. Cool. Yeah, I'll get right on that. uh, I'm not going to be in part two because I'm going to go do that now.
1: Okay. Uh, (laughs) While you're doing it, feel free to mutter to yourself these podcasts will self-destruct in 15 seconds. (laughs) No.
3: Podcast in two weeks or so <laughs> when we get around to it.
1: I mean seriously,
2: though, does it improve these movies to you to know
1: that they're no, drawing
2: it's, this it's heavily fine. on each No, it's fine. I think it's useful when you are hosting a movie discussion podcast, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> you do have a point there.
1: I mean, I'm glad that somebody uh, that somebody observed it and caught it. I think that this is a really cool comment. It doesn't it does make me like the movies better. It just makes me think about them differently, which is not always the same thing. Well, that wraps up our feedback for this episode, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in The Meg, which is... Maybe not quite as good as Jaws, but is at least extremely familiar, sometimes on a scene-for-scene basis, sometimes even on a dog-for-dog basis. (laughs) Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be sitting here comparing our scars. Okay guys, this is a good one. I got this one when I burned my arm on some hot popcorn grease that is showing off the jaws too. But you can't beat that one. <laughs>